We've been in the encounter with Jesus in the book of Mark for the past few weeks. And I hope you've seen how incredible these encounters have been. For those of you who kind of are new to some of these stories, I, I hope you've seen Jesus so clearly. He's God incarnate who came to inaugurate his kingdom and to save his people. Now, for those of you who've kind of heard these stories, they're kind of old and familiar, I hope you see and glean new truths from them that will help you shape you into becoming more like Jesus. See, here is, this is one of the amazing, incredible things I love about the Bible, is that there's no getting tired of it. There's no knowing it so well that you don't get more from study of it. And this encounter is one of those encounters that's a great example, at least for me, very practically speaking. This is one of those encounters, this is one of those stories that you've probably heard before. How many of you guys have ever heard this story before? Even if you've never grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story before. Very familiar story of Jesus feeding 5,000. Every Sunday school class is known in the culture. Even if you've never gone to church, it's mentioned in pop references and cultural references. I bet you there's a phonograph about this at the Benfield home. <laughs> I, I, I just love using that, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> It's a, it's, it's, it's a popular story. It's a story that's been used over and over again. Now, for those of you who've heard this story, what's the main message? What's the main point? Who wants to try throwing it out there? Maybe just shake his I'm not even going to try. <laughs> what's the main message? What's the main point? Now, you've heard this story before. What do people say is the main message? Go ahead, give it a try. Anybody? God provides. Great answer. Anybody else? Yes, God can multiply your efforts or what, what you give, God takes and multiplies. Good one. What else? <clears throat> Are those the most common ones you've heard? Yes? God has compassion for his people. Great. So God provides, God has compassion for his people, and God takes what you give and he multiplies. Right? Is that, nod your head with me if that's about common what you've heard as, as like the meaning and the message of that passage. That's what I've grown up hearing my whole life. Every story I've ever heard, every story I've ever heard about this passage, that is why I've heard it being the main point. Can I tell you something though? And these are all great answers and I believe it's, 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 it's all part of it. But I believe the main message of this passage is something different. And honestly, last week when I was studying this passage is when I first kind of like, oh, wait a minute. That commentary said this, and that fits, and whoa, look how this comes alive. And, and I was like, that's different. And I, guys, I've read this a bazillion times, and now I'm like, something new, something came out of it. So I want you guys to, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. So we're going to dive together into this text, and we're going to see and discover what that kind of main point is. But I want us to dive into it together and see, because I want you guys to see, that's how incredible the Bible is. Went to seminary. I've been preaching for a while, and I've, I've been in the Word. And let me tell you, God always reveals something new. Maybe it's because I've changed. Maybe God's changing me. But also, I believe there's so much depth to His Word here. People often look at Mark as kind of the easy gospel, right? It's the short one. It's the shortest gospel, um, probably the first gospel written. But let me tell you, even in the short, easy gospel, there's so much depth of what Mark is trying to portray. Now remember, Mark is writing this, announcing and telling this big announcement to, tip, uh, to Roman, Christian, uh, Roman Christians out there who's normally writing to, it's, it's a Roman Gentile uh, who become believers. So let's dive into this text together. We'll put it up on the screen. 
In the start of this text, we see Jesus is back with his disciples. The disciples were sent out by Jesus earlier in the chapter to proclaim a message of repentance and to heal the sick. So they go out and they just return just in time and they're telling Jesus all that happened. And we read and we see that when they went out earlier in the chapter, they went out and, and, and they were telling people and proclaiming the good news and, and they were healing the sick and casting out demons. They were doing amazing, powerful acts. So they're excited. They are pumped. They are stoked. They say, okay, get back to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, can you believe what happened? Jesus, Jesus, I did this, I did this, and this happened. This person got healed, and this person's demon got cast out, and whoa, it was crazy. And they're full of excitement. They're just telling Jesus, you sent us out. We went, and here's what happened. They're full of excitement. They're just telling Jesus, and they're saying, and I can just picture it now. They're, they're up to Jesus, and they're like, okay, you gave us power now. So let's do it, Jesus. We're ready. We went out. Let's go take over the Roman Empire, right? We're ready to do this, Jesus. Let's go, let's go not conquer the Roman Empire. Let's go take over the world. Yeah, I mean, that's how I would have been. Because here I am. I'm following this teacher. He's doing amazing things, but now all of a sudden he sent me out, and now I'm able to do amazing things in his name? Oh, we're like, what's the president? What's the emperor now? These guys are nothing compared to you, Jesus. Let's go to conquer. Let's go take over the Roman Empire. And so these disciples are on fire. They're excited. They're passionate. They're reporting to Jesus everything that happened. But then Jesus said something different. He says, let's go on a retreat. He said, let's go away. Now, he might be here doing this to teach a very true lesson for a lot of us is that we often get carried away, get too excited. We don't take time to think, take time away. We often get so busy, consumed, doing all the work that God has called us to do that we don't take time to retreat and be fed ourselves. That could be what he's trying to do. Not sure, but that's what Jesus says. In the midst of all this excitement, Jesus says, let's go to a desolate place. In other words, let's go to a quiet place. Let's go to a place where throngs of people aren't around. So he takes them in their excitement, and they hop on a boat. And they're like, off to go. And so that's got to be a desolate place, by the way, to get on a boat, to, go to, to, to get there. So they hop on a boat, and they're off to go to a desolate place. But here's the thing. The people were so eager to be around them. Mind you, he says that they weren't even allowing them time to eat. The people were so eager to be around them that they actually followed them. So in my mind, when I think of a boat, I think of like the ocean and big seas, but that's not actually where they were. They weren't out actually in the ocean and big seas. So what the people were able to do is they actually were able to see the boat going off. And they're like, oh, they're going that direction. Let's go. So they would actually march, walk ahead of time, try to get there. So when the boat landed, they'd actually be there as well, which defeats the whole purpose of getting off on a boat and getting away from the people. But that's what happened. And I'm, the, the disciples have kind of been like, Whoa, whoa, I, I thought we were going to have some alone time with Jesus so we could talk more about his plans of taking over the Roman Empire. You know, I thought with being with Jesus is going to make me like we get to be away because he wants to like, hey, we're the generals now. And so he's going to tell us what to do. They were excited. They might just be like, oh, I just want time with Jesus. I'm tired of all these people following us. Because when they got off the boat, they wanted desolate space. They wanted separate space. They wanted just time with them and Jesus. But when they got off the boat instead, what did they see? What they just left behind. A ton of people who just wanted something. A throng of people who wanted something. And you see kind of right away that the disciples' heart, hearts were more, you could probably guess, of frustration. Maybe anger. Maybe bitterness. 
You know, maybe they were like, you know, we just, we just got away from you guys. What are you doing here? You know, I, I, I just imagine them kind of probably not having compassion. Probably at, at a place where they just would do anything to get away. I just need a moment to myself. And maybe some of you guys have been there, right? You're like, oh, I just need a second. I just need a quiet space. I need a quiet time. I'm not typically that guy. <laughs> I typically like being around people all the time. You know, but even myself, even me, like there are times I'm just like, okay, please, nothing, no noise. I'm just going to lay down in the dark corner somewhere. I just need to be by myself. And so the disciples were here and they get off the boat. And remember, they, they've been thronged by people. Jesus has been around people. And Jesus, we often talk about, is he like, what is he on the Myers-Briggs? I don't know. Some, some people have talked about that. Like, what is Jesus on the Myers-Briggs? And I like to say ENFP just because that's what I am. But somebody said, well, he's everything. And so if he's everything, then there's actually part introvert to him. And he's got to be like, oh, I need some time alone too, which you see throughout the Bible. He does take time to go off and pray. But here he is, and he sees all these people. And his, he has a different reaction, though, than the disciples. It says in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Here is Jesus wanting to get away with his disciples, get away from the crowd. But the first thing that happens when they get off the boat is there's a crowd who wants more from Jesus. But he looks at them and his answer, his gut reaction isn't the reaction that the disciples had of one being like the bitterness maybe or what's going on. His reaction is one that says he has compassion upon them. He looks at them and something inside his heart is filled. He looks at them and he feels emotion. He feels for them. Why? It says because he's a sheep. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now what does that mean? They're like sheep without a shepherd. On first glance, you would look at that and you'd be like, they're like, they're so they're wandering? Or they're lost? Right? Wouldn't you guess that? If, they, if you heard that phrase, you'd think, well, they're lost. Or they're wandering. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get where they need to go. Right? But for the Old Testament, for the people who understood and knew the Old Testament, had a very significant reference. Numbers 27, 17, 1 Kings 22, 17, Ezekiel 34, 5, Zechariah 10, 2, has a reference of this idea of sheep without a shepherd. It's a regular biblical way of describing the people of Israel when they have no leader or no king. So Numbers 27, 17 says this, Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd? 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen, And he said, I saw all Israel scattered in the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. This is in reference to the Israelite people saying, they have, a sheep without a shepherd means they have no king. They have no Moses-like ruler. They have no David-like king. They have nobody to guide them and to lead them. Think about that now. So Jesus looked and he says, I have compassion on them, Mark said, because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now let's look back again in Mark before verse um, uh, 30. And it says the story of Herod. So if you look back in Mark chapter 6, right before this passage, there's just kind of a, almost a weird break. Right before that, Jesus is casting out demons, and he's, then he's sending out his 12 disciples. Then there's a story of Herod, and then he's going back to Jesus. 
So it's almost like a narrative break in the story. So here's Mark telling the story of Jesus. He's doing this amazing, all the encounters, what Jesus is doing. He, Jesus set, um, cast out some demons, then he sent out his disciples to do the same thing. But then comes this little break in the narrative. And comes the story of Herod, King Herod. And we see here King Herod, he's off in his palace, far to the south of where they are located. He's throwing banquets, getting drunk, marrying his brother's wife, and beheading prophets. This is the king of Israel. This is, this is their king. This is the king of all the people right there that's around him. This is who their king is. And here are his people. Jesus is sitting here, and he's in front of his people, and they're desperate for leadership. And here's a young prophet to whom they flock to. Is he that king? You see, Mark is making a statement. He's saying in his narrative story, he's telling the story of Jesus, but has a break to point out and to illustrate and show to the reader that here's the actual, not the actual, but here's the king of Israel. And he's a drunkard that, that obeys the very whims of his court. He's no leader. But then now back to the story of Jesus. He looks out and he sees his people. And he sees that they are without a king. Guys, I want you to make this statement. That this passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the main point of it is to establish that Jesus is the king who provides for his people. That's what the purpose of this encounter, this miracle is to show us. That's what Mark is saying. He's saying the way a king should provide, the way a shepherd should provide. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd takes the sheep to where grass is green, where they can eat and be provided for, right? What is a king supposed to do? To take his people and put them in situations where they're on mission together, where they have plate and they have enough to eat. You provide for them. Jesus is making this proclamation, Mark is making the proclamation in this miracle, in this, in this story, that Jesus is the king of these people. So Jesus looked out, looked upon his people, and said that they are leaderless people. So he has compassion, so he teaches them many things, it says. And as the hour gets later, the disciples come up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, we need to disperse the crowd. Crowd needs to go away because they need to get something to eat. Now, I don't know how long Jesus has been teaching for at this point. They said the hour got late. So I imagine it's been a long time. And Jesus is teaching, and the people are so captivated by the teaching of Jesus that they forget about the food, which is a difficult concept in my mind. Like, I'm like, I don't care how good it, I mean, most of you guys, if I was preaching to like, 11, you guys would be like, whoa. <laughs> I'm no Jesus, I understand this. But I'm just saying, you guys would be like, it's, it's, it's time for lunch. Uh, some of you guys are, might be like me, like I'm eating a meal, I'm already planning my next one, you know? And it's one of those situations where here are the people and they're listening and they don't care. They don't care about food. They know they're in desolate places. They didn't pack any food with them. The very words of Jesus were sustenance to them. It mattered more than food. They didn't care. They didn't care about it, all of it because they needed the food that Jesus gave was more filling, was more satisfying. It was so satisfying that food didn't come up, but Jesus tells his disciples, you know what, go ahead and feed them. And they balk at him, knowing that we don't have enough food, we don't have enough funds to feed so many people. I mean, Jesus, let's do a little bit of math here, but um, this looks like a bazillion dollars. I'm going to throw that number, that's the exact amount of money it cost. And this is a bazillion dollars, Jesus, and you got like ten. You know, this, is, this doesn't work. The math, it doesn't work here. 
And so Jesus asks them, well, what, what do you have? So they come back and say, we have five loaves and two fish. So then he commands them all to sit on the green grass, which, by the way, does that jump out at anybody else? That they actually mentioned that it was a green grass? Right? I mean, maybe some of you guys are like, no. Some of you guys, isn't grass typically green? <laughs> you guys got to understand, this climate in this area, grass was not typically green. It's actually only green during the spring. During springtime, a very short amount of time, was the grass actually green? And so why would Mark specifically say that the grass was green? Maybe, I'm not saying this is truth, and it might not be the case, but what else was going on during springtime? Do you guys know? It's a very difficult question, so I'm going to ask, I'm not expecting an answer. It was Passover time. Passover was during their spring. That's when the grass was green. And Mark shows that Jesus did a very Passover-like meal in this breaking of the bread, blessing it, and handing it out. And what was Passover signifying? I feel like I'm doing a lot of Q&A today. <laughs> what was Passover? What, what was it supposed to be? Anybody remember? What was Passover celebrating? He passed over, anybody? Right? It was the lamb that was slain that allowed death to pass over. Right? This is a beautiful story of Mark establishing over and over again that Jesus is the king who saves by dying. This is a king who provides, but not in the, in the Roman Empire way, not in the, the way of the content of the people. See, remember the disciples went off, and they went off in power. They healed, and they cast out demons. So they came back thinking, Jesus, you're king. We believe you're the Messiah. You're the promised king. So let's go. Let's go take over the Roman Empire. But over and over again, Jesus is showing that my kingdom advances not with swords and with uh, tactical strategies or, or uh, mites of my arms, but instead my kingdom advances by giving of bread, by healing the sick, and by ultimately by dying upon a cross. My kingdom advances by death and sacrifice, not by might of arms. And here we see Jesus and Mark showing us over and over again, the, uh, uh, tying into the Passover, that he saves by dying. And then he lines them up. It says he groups them up in the groups of 50s and 100s, right? It said that right here. You're moving on. Uh, he sits them down in groups by 100s and 50s. Now, you might not get this too, but that's another, like, why? What does that mean? Anybody know what a centurion is, by the way? A centurion? Anybody have any idea? Say that again? Yeah, a centurion is a, is, a, is, a, is a soldier of a cohort of about 100, right? Century, get it? Centurion. This was an idea, this organizing and this grouping of people into groups of 50s and 100s gave you an idea of almost military-like formation, right? Almost military-like formation that, that establishing is this, is that he's the king, he's organizing his people as an army. He's the king, and he's organizing his people as an army. He feeds his people. He cares for his people. He's the king, but because he's king, he also gives purpose and mission to his people. You see, here's King Herod. Here's a contrast that Mark is trying for us so desperately to see in this passage. Is here's King Herod, and all he cares about is throwing a party. 
All he cares about is pleasing um, his, his relative's daughter because she did, she did something that pleased him. And so she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he gives that. All he cares about is himself. All he cares about is not his people. So Jesus then sees his people and he has compassion. He's the king that has compassion for his people. But then not only that, he's a king who provides for his people abundantly with bread that will go forever. Guys, how many, well, how many baskets were left over, by the way? Twelve. What else had twelve? Anybody? Disciples and tribes of Israel. He's saying there's enough for the whole nation. Do you see? I provide for the nation. I am the king of the nation. I am the king of all of it. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Guys, let me tell you three things. I'm going to try to do this fairly quickly here. Three things in truth I want you to hold to that because Jesus is king, we are no longer sheep without a shepherd. That means three things for us. First, it means we now have purpose and vision for our lives. See, here's the thing we said earlier. When you are a sheep without a shepherd, that means you kind of wander aimlessly. Right? When you're sheep without a shepherd, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where the good food is. You don't know what your purpose is. You don't know where home is. So you're just kind of like, oh, I'm just following you. I don't know what I'm doing. You just wander aimlessly. But for us, because we are people with a shepherd, we are sheep with a shepherd, we are a nation with a king, we have a general, we have a ruler, that means that our, perp- our lives have purpose and meaning. There is vision for us. There is purpose for all that we live and all that we do. There is vision for us. There is a direction that we are going that God has called us to. There are marching orders that we've been giving. Our lives have purpose and significance. Do not believe any lie that says that you're just floating around in this universe and you just make the best of it. You're meant for so much more. You're made with dignity and you're called to eternal significance and purpose. Because he is king, because he's king over you, your life has purpose and vision. It's not aimless. It has purpose. Two, because Jesus is king, even the most mundane act is glory. Even the most mundane act is for a purpose. It's all for the king. Because he is king, guys, I want you to understand this. Because he is king, I don't know if you guys know much. I don't know much about the military other than, like, from, from books that I've read about, like, I don't, I've actually read, anybody read Sun Tzu, Art of War? Anybody? I've actually read that book. It's fascinating. But in it, and most all kind of great military people of old will always say this. Uh, some of the most important elements of war is logistics. They will say that some of the most important people in any battle is not your soldiers, not even your generals, but the ones in charge of how your soldiers will eat or even use the restroom. The ones who dig the latrine will save more lives often than the one who does all the shooting or the fighting. The great warrior might fight and do this certain amount of things, but if you have no supplies, well, uh, the two Bs somebody said of war is bread and bullets. And all that to say is that that means when you're part of this massive army that every little bit counts because it's going towards saving lives or going towards winning or completing your objective. Guys, when you realize that God, Jesus is king, that he's called your life to purpose and vision, that means every mundane act that you think you do, 
that you think is nothing, that it seems like, oh, what's the purpose of this? That God is using even that for glory. It's like digging a latrine. You know, military people, when they, back in the day before they had all the modern technologies, when they'd go marching to war, every night, you'd have to have people who dig a place where they'd go use the restroom. And that was so vital because if you did not do that, disease would become rampant. But could you imagine if you were the guy that had to dig the latrine? Like, this stinks, literally. I hate this. But it has purpose. Guys, maybe you're in a place in your life right now. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's being single. Maybe it's whatever stage in life you're at right now. And maybe you're just kind of like, ah, this is tough. And I kind of don't see the purpose in it. Because Jesus is king, even the mundane and the thing that you're doing now that seems without purpose has incredible purpose. And he's using it for incredible glory. You might be that guy who's digging away and you're like, I can't, I don't see it. I'm literally in poop. I don't see it. Maybe that's your life right now. Maybe you're sick. Maybe your health is poor. And you're sitting here and you're like, I don't get it, God. I don't like being sick and I hate it. And I don't get it, but I'm sitting here and I'm just doing it. I'm going through life, digging my shovel in. And I don't like this, God. But can I tell you that because of Jesus, because Jesus is king, because he is your king, it is not nothing. It is purpose and it's working out an incredible glory, not just in you, but for his kingdom advancement. We just might not see it all. But because of this miracle, because of this encounter, we can believe that he is doing something bigger. Amen? Three. The other choice, we, the truth that we need to hold on to because Jesus is king, that he uses what even little we have, the mundane we do, what little we have, and he multiplies it. That he's the one who multiplies it. You see, an act by itself, not as part of a larger team, this is, uh, is going to sh- maybe age me and sh- make me an even bigger nerd than I am. Have you guys ever watched Voltron? Anybody? No. What? Oh, my gosh. Vol- thank you. Voltron was the awesomest um, robot slash defender of the universe that ever existed. <laughs> okay. If you don't know what Voltron is, and you really are, I think they did a remake of the show on Netflix. You can check it out. I did. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Imagine, like, <laughs> Voltron had, like, five robot lions, you know? They were, like, pretty awesome. But what Voltron, bear with me here. This is good. What would happen with Voltron is when they, the monster that they would fight was bigger and more powerful than the lions by themselves, they would combine to form one awesome machine called Voltron. And he'd have a blazing sword. That's what they called it, the blazing sword. It was awesome. And he would conquer the monster. Guys, can I tell you this? Right now, whatever it is that we feel that we have to give, whatever it is that we feel like we're doing, whatever small part we feel that we have in the role, that God, he's the ultimate uh, strategist. No, wait, that doesn't work. Strategist, thank you. He's the ultimate strategist. He's the ultimate tactician. He's the ultimate general. He is our incredible king. That he uses what small part, puts it all together as the whole body of Christ, and he advances his kingdom. Guys, we look out in our world and we think the monsters are bigger than us. We see injustice and racism. We see oppression. We see poverty. We see disease. We see genocide. And we think that is so much 
bigger than me and my little part that I have to play. But can I tell you that he uses everything that we have, that little bit that we have to give, he uses it and he multiplies it. He turns us into Voltron, the defender of the universe. Yes, I said it. Guys, Jesus is king. He is our king. We are no longer sheep without a shepherd. We have a ruler. We have a king who multiplies our efforts, who multiplies what little we give, and he conquers the biggest monsters, the biggest demons. He conquered death and sin itself. These are truths we hold to because Jesus is king. We now have purpose and vision for our lives because Jesus is king. Even the most mundane act is for glory and for the king. And because Jesus is king, he uses what little we have and he multiplies it. This passage of scripture shows us a contrast between the king of Israel and what it looks like to be sheep without a shepherd and then what it looks like to be, to have a king, Jesus. He provides, he feeds, he leads us to green pastures. He organizes us. He places us in situations to see his kingdom come, his kingdom advance. And the way his kingdom advances is not through arms and might, not through bullets and swords, but it's through his people truly believing Jesus is king and sacrificing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you God, that you looked upon us and you saw people, you saw sheep without a shepherd. You saw us without direction and vision. You saw us leaderless, God, and you took pity. You had compassion upon us. So you taught us. You showed us what it looks like to live a life of love the way Jesus lived. But ultimately, you redeemed us. You captured us. You bought us. You paid the ultimate price for us, Jesus, upon the cross. So that we can be known, we can be loved. God, that Jesus is you as our king that our lives have purpose and vision. God, we thank you that even our most mundane act is for glory, leads to glory. And God, that you take what little we have to give, you multiply it. So Heavenly Father, show us every day, show us anew that you are our king that calls us to kingdom advancement by laying ourselves down to look and live like Jesus. May we do so to see your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. God has given to us.